I have, I have spent a good part of my Christian life with one cry in my heart, Lord, teach me to pray. And it's, it's, been, it's been with me ever since I can remember, uh, since uh, the days of, of being a young believer in Christ to even standing on this platform many years ago, where during worship I would cry out, God, help me to pray. Show me what prayer is and teach me how to pray. And so after all these years, what happened was, it's not so much technique that I've learned, but God began to show me himself his heart. For example, when Jesus Christ went into the temple and on his way to Jerusalem, when he went into the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and those that sold doves and goats and all of the rest of it, we're seeing something in the heart of God because his house was supposed to be a place of prayer. And because the religious system of the day had made it something other than what it was intended to be, he himself was denied the opportunity to answer the cries of his own people. And that's what produced the anger, the only tangible anger you actually see in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It was, it was that thought that you have produced a system that has denied me access to my people. And he desired to be God to his people. You look at when, when the, uh, Solomon dedicated the temple and at night the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, I've heard your prayer. And he said, I've, I've, I've decided that my heart is perpetually going to be there. And even if I have to send pestilence or the people are captivated within their own borders, if those who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, he said, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And then he said something profound to Solomon. He said, now my eyes will be open and my ears will be listening constantly for the prayer that will be prayed in this place. How sad it is to come in person as it is many, many years later on the temple that's built on that very foundation of Solomon's temple and see that it had become something other than what God had intended it to be. But it's not just the deficiency of the religious system of that time. It's the reality that there's a passion in the heart of God to answer prayer. When's the last time you saw God like that? You know, quite often we think that God somehow came to the world, died for our sins, went back to heaven, folded his arms, and just, he waits for us to, to get enough scripture together, to get our words right, to have a mountain of faith in our heart, whatever it is, and, and maybe, reluctantly, he'll answer our prayers. But the, as a matter of fact, the opposite is true. It's we who are reluctant to believe that God is passionate about answering us before we even ask. And I've been seeing something in the heart of God that I want to bring to you in the scriptures by way of just consideration. If you take a look at what we're about to talk to and talk about today, I've titled this message, God will move heaven and earth to answer you. And I'm going to prove it to you in the scriptures. Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 4, please, if you'll go there in your Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible, there's the scripture beyond the screen. And or you can get it on your phone. Father, I just thank you for the, I thank you, God, that your word tells us so much about who you are if we're willing to see it and to hear it. I thank you for the anointing of your Holy Spirit that takes us in our weakness and makes us so much more than we could ever hope to be. God, I would never want to presume to ever in my lifetime stand in a pulpit and just presume upon you. I need you as much today as I have ever needed you in my lifetime. 
But you are willing to be God to the people that are gathered here today. You're willing to speak if you find a surrendered vessel or vessels. And Lord, so our hearts are open to you. Speak to us what you want us to hear and give us the grace to hear it and the grace to believe it. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let's cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Does that sound like your life? Anybody here yet? You know, you got a word from Jesus. You know, if you'll trust in me, I'll take you to the other side. So you got in the boat with him, and now you're halfway across your journey, and the wind and the waves are beating on your boat, and you're wondering, God, am I ever going to make it through this life? But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Has anybody prayed that prayer recently? In your room at night alone, God, do you not care that I'm being persecuted at work? Do you not care that I don't have a job? Do you not care that I'm, I'm not free yet from this, this uh, addiction in my mind or my body, whatever the case is, or that the way people are treating me or that I'm lonely or lost or hungry? Do you not care? And then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I, I think it was instantaneous. I don't think it was gradually the waves went down. I think they just went flat like a mirror. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful, and how is it that you have no faith? Not little faith. No faith. Their only prayer was an accusation. They didn't really believe, other than the fact that the Son of God was with them in the boat. They didn't even believe they were going to make it to the other side. And they woke him up, accusing him of being not faithful. But in spite of the fact that their prayer had no faith in it, he still answered it. He still got up, and he rebuked the wind, and he calmed the seas. In Psalm 107 in the Old Testament, we're shown four instances where people or societies seemingly are broken beyond hope and without repair, but yet when they cry out for help, God answers and sets them free. The first instance, verses 4 to 9, it talks about people who are hungry. They're wandering in the wilderness. They're lonely. They're empty. They find no place to dwell. They're hungry and thirsty, and their soul is fainting in them. And then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. Later on in verse 10, it talks about those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and iron because they rebelled against the words of God. Think about this present society we're now living in, the depth of rebellion against the word of God that we're now experiencing, and the fact that we're now finding ourselves captivated by addictions and such like in our major towns and cities, and captivated by incivility and, and hatred one for another and such like things. Because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High, <clears throat> therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was no one to help, and then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. Verse 17, fools because of their transgression and because of their iniquities are afflicted. Their soul abhors all manner of food. 
and they draw near to the gates of death because of their iniquities. They're, they're not wanting what God wants to give, pushing away, in a sense, the Word of God, pushing away even the true and correct history of how God has dealt with us as a nation throughout the years. But then they cry to the Lord in their trouble, and He saves them out of their distresses. He sent His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. And lastly, verse 23, it says, those who go down to the sea in ships who do business in great waters, they see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. And those who have trusts in really in commerce to keep them, trusts in their money in the bank, trusts in their retirement plans and all of the schemes and plans that they've, they've put together to give them security in the future, only to find out that these things are all collapsing around them, which unfortunately we're starting to experience today and probably will in a much greater degree in the future. Don't forget, when all these things begin to happen, it's the mercy call of God. Some will say, well, this is the judgment of God. That's true in measure, but mercy still triumphs over judgment. And, and I, I would rather that God pull out the carpet of false security than leave us to ourselves as a society heading on our own way with our own pursuits and winding up in an eternity without God. The scripture says, then they cry in verse 28, then they cry to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they're quiet, and he guides them to their desired heaven. So you, you see these instances in, in society where, where people are hungry, lost, rebellious, bound, foolish, dying, and have embraced a false trust and no longer really trust in God anymore. And suddenly all these things, they begin to realize that they're in prison. They begin to realize that they're lost, they're bound, they're foolish, they're dying. And all of their trusts that they've, they've trust, trusted in are collapsing under their feet. And then they cry to the Lord in their trouble. But, and there's no evidence in this psalm that there's any faith in their cry. It's just a cry of despair. It's a cry of desperation. It's an, oh God, help me moment. If you're out there, please help me. There's, there's no real mountain of Scripture behind this cry. Don't forget, they have pushed away the Word of God. They pushed away the warnings of God. They have embraced false pursuits and false trusts, and then suddenly there's this cry comes into their heart, and God, in His mercy, answers them, brings them out of their distresses, calms their storm, stills their waves, brings them to the place that they've always really longed to be. They just didn't know that's what they were longing for. He brings them into a relationship with himself. We are created by God, in the image of God, for God, eternally for God. We are the only thing in creation that has the ability to make a decision to accept or reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And God brings us home. And now this verse, the last verse of Psalm 107 says it this way, whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Whoever is wise will see these things, will read these things, and begin to understand how incredibly kind God is. Amazing. Amazing. Not withholding, not drawing back, not saying to the people, well, you made the mistake. You decided to walk away from me, so you bear the consequences of it. You, you said you didn't need me, so go ahead. See if you can save yourself. You trusted in money more than you trusted in me, so let money be your guide into the future. No, he doesn't do that. When they cry out, he calms their storm, stills their waves, brings them back to himself again because his mercy endures forever. Thank God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, in our opening text, he describes 
his disciples at this time as having no faith. Now, it, it's, it's a type of the young believer. These are young believers in a sense. They're, they're, they're not fully, they don't fully get the cross yet. Of course, it doesn't even happen, so they obviously don't get it. They, they understand that the Messiah in measure at least is with them, but they're new to, to walking with him, just as many of, of you are here today as well. And they're on this, this journey, and Jesus describes their prayer as having no faith. Is there anybody here who can identify with that? You're, you're praying, but you're, you're just, you're, your prayer is not even a prayer. It's an accusation against God. That's, that's what it was. Do you not care that we're perishing? And he says, why are you so fearful? Why do you have no faith? And the beauty of it is that it was, at least it was an honest cry. It may not have been faithful, but at least it was honest. And at least it acknowledged that his presence can make a difference. It was enough for him to get up and calm the waves and calm the wind and say, peace, be still, because God is good and his mercy endures forever. Oh, thank God. So they have no faith. So here's an instance where there's no faith, and yet he answers their prayer. Now, I want to show you another one of somebody in the New Testament, in Mark chapter 9, that has some faith. Mark chapter 9, there was a, a father whose, whose, whose son, whose child, from childhood, verse uh, 22, it says Mark 9, 22, and often it says he's thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So he's got a child, and it's a type of the, the, the unbridled passions in this generation now that are being unleashed, in a sense, in a whole generation of young people that have been raised without God. They, they've, they've been told there's no such thing as eternal life. There's no such thing as a cross or salvation. They've been led to believe that if it feels good, do it. There's no consequence to it. They, they, they've been raised without any real moral moorings. And, and now we see in the news just a couple of days ago a whole group of teenagers going into a restaurant and just destroying it for the fun of it. I think some of you saw that in the news. And this is the fire that's starting to embrace this young generation now because there's a frustration in the hearts of young people. When, when this is all there is to life and when there's not much to this, then there's an anger comes in the heart and says, well, if that's all there is, I'm just going to destroy it all anyway. If, 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 if this is what life is, and if I, I'm just here for this, this small season of time and then it's all over, then why not just have as much fun or be as angry as I am without any restraints? And the father said he's, his son's already, or daughter's already cast into the fire too as well, and to destroy, into the water rather, and we, we see the, the waters of confusion now that this generation is being baptized in. Instead of the water of God's word that brings life and it brings clarity and it brings cleansing and direction, there's this, this baptism of confusion that's hitting this generation where people are, they don't know who they are, they don't know what they are, they don't know where they're going. There's, there's just such incredible confusion. And the father comes to Jesus and said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And I, I can hear the cry now. I can hear the cry of, of moms and dads that don't know what what's going to happen with their children in the future. And they're, they're, they're praying and they're saying, God, if, if you can help us, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. There is a cry in this generation. And Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Have you ever been there? God, I believe as much as I can believe. I, all of our faith has limits. 
you know, is anybody here raised the dead recently? And if you haven't, then your faith has limits. You understand? Have you walked on water? If you haven't, your faith has limits. All of our faith has limits. And, and I've prayed that over the years. God, I, I believe as much as I can. And if, if you want my faith to go beyond that line, that limit in my heart, you're going to have to take me there because I can't get there on my own. I can't do it. That's what the father was crying out. Lord, I, I believe uh, that you can set my son free. But if, if my faith is short, then, then take, take it where it needs to go because I can't go beyond what's in my heart right now. Take it where it needs to go. And then Jesus commands that spirit to come out and enter him no more. And that child was set free. And here's the case. Now, the first prayer was a prayer of no faith that he answered of his own disciples. Now we have a, a prayer where he sets free a child that was oppressed by darkness through a father that had some faith. Thank God for the mercy of God. Thank God that we don't have to have it all together. Thank God that we don't have to, we don't have to get every line right. We don't have to get every prayer right. We don't, we, we don't even get much right. Re realistically, when we get there, we'll see how far short our, all of our prayers came, no matter how eloquent we thought we were. We'll see. And then in 2 Kings chapter 20, this, this is a story in the Bible that just nails it. It's about the cry of someone who wanted to believe. <laughs> so we have, we have a prayer that was answered that had no faith. We have a second prayer that was answered that had some faith. Now we're going to see God move heaven and earth to answer the prayer of somebody who said, I want to believe you. Isn't that amazing? Now, chapter 20 of 2 Kings. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I've walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart. I've done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And I, I know there's somebody here like that online or in this sanctuary today that this has been your prayer lately. God, I want to live. I want to live. I feel like I'm dying inside. I feel like there's, I have no purpose in life. I, I don't like the way I'm going. And, and you turn your face to the wall just as Hezekiah did. You go to bed at night and you're turning to the wall and you're silently weeping and saying, I don't like who I am. I don't like what I am. I don't like what's going on in my life. I don't like where I'm going. I feel like I'm going to die. Oh God, let me live. Let me live. I'm I'm so tired of this. Um, I, I, I just don't see a way forward, and I, I feel like my life is over. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. Look at that for a word from God. Coming through the mouth of a prophet, God says, I've heard you. I've seen your tears. I'm going to heal you. And in three days, you're going to be in the temple offering praise to me. Praise be to God. That means for you, it's going to be like next Tuesday. I'll tell you, it's two days. You're going to be back in the temple, and you're going to be praising God for what he has done in your life. Now, and then Hezekiah, verse 8, said to Isaiah, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day. Can you imagine? God gives you a word through a prophet that he's going to do this. If I was God, I would have said to Hezekiah, here's your sign. You'll be in the temple in three days, and you'll be healed. 
Enough said. But here's what the Lord did. Isaiah said, this is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or backwards 10 degrees? Now, 10 degrees on the sundial of that time is 20 minutes. So Isaiah is saying, here's what the Lord will do to show you that he's going to heal you. Not that God had to do that, but he wanted him to know that I'll be faithful to what I said I'm going to do. And he wasn't offended by the prayer of a man who wanted to believe. Isn't that amazing? You and I, if we were God, we'd be offended. But he wasn't offended by the prayer of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah said it's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. In other words, time naturally moves forward, but it never goes backwards. Isn't that amazing? That's kind of an appropriate illustration considering we turned our clocks ahead. At least most of us did at midnight last night. Some of you missed the morning service because you forgot to turn your clock ahead. But let the shadow go back 10 degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backwards by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. Now, in response to the prayer of a man who said, God, I want to believe you that you're going to heal me. God turns time backwards, which tells us a couple of things. Number one, God doesn't dwell in time like we do. We dwell in this little space in eternity called time. He doesn't. He dwells from eternity past to eternity future. He doesn't dwell in time. So he can do, he's the Lord over time. Do you understand? He can do whatever he wants. He can go back and he can heal things that you thought could never be healed in your life. He can go back and give you things that you thought you were never, you lost them, you're never going to have them again. He can go back and give you back callings that you thought slipped through your fingers. He can go back and he can make your life into something that the natural progression of sin in your life seemingly took it away from you. God is not, he doesn't dwell in time like we do. He can go back into the past and he can change everything. Hallelujah. Thank God. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. In order to turn the world, so he had to take the world and he had to turn the world backwards 20 minutes. In order to do that, he had to suspend the laws of gravity. If you, if you stop the world, number one, the oceans would overflow the continents. So he had to, he had to keep the seas in place. And, and at the point where the world actually stops before it turns backwards, we would all literally, everything on the surface of the earth would fly off into space. So he has to suspend the laws of gravity in order to turn the world backwards. It's amazing. Then he turned to turn it back 20 minutes. That's what he did. It's as if we're, we're here, it's now 2.15. And it's as if we, we prayed that same prayer and then suddenly it's five to two and we wonder how did that happen? And all of a sudden the whole world has gone backwards 20 minutes. Now, I've studied this and I've read commentaries on it from those that do study astronomy and astrophysics and all this kind of stuff. And the interesting thing is to turn the world back 20 minutes, you can't just turn the world back, you have to actually turn the whole solar system back that the world is part of. Otherwise, everything is out of sync. The seasons would all change and uh, all the plant, everything would be out of alignment. So you can't just turn the world back. You got to turn everything around it back. And others say you can't just turn the Milky Way back. You have to turn the whole universe backwards 20 minutes. Otherwise, everything is thrown out of sync because we're all moving together in one direction. Absolutely amazing what God can do to answer the prayer to answer the prayer of a man who just said, I want to believe. 
I want to believe, God, that you're going to heal me. I want to believe that I'm going to be in the temple praising you. So Lord says, well, I'll show you what I can do. You see, when, when, he, when he stopped the wind and he stopped the seas, the, the, the scripture says the disciples said, what kind of a man is this that even the wind and the seas obey? Well, it's the same, same man that turned back the universe for Hezekiah. It's the same God. Who's, who's he was unoffended by the prayer of unbelief and accusation of his own disciples. He was, he's, he's, he's unoffended by the, the father that says, I believe as much as I can. God, help me. Take me where I need to go so that you can do a miracle in my son's life. He's unoffended by King Hezekiah who has a word from a prophet of God, from the mouth of God himself through a prophet, and yet doesn't fully believe it. He says, I want to believe it, so give me a sign that you're going to do this. So I think it settles it once and for all that God will move heaven and earth to answer you. It's, it's really that simple. He did. He moved heaven and earth. The answer to man's cry proves that God will, beyond all doubt, do whatever he has to do to answer our cry. And so the question is, if you're lost, if you're hungry, if you're bound, if you're dying inside, what are you waiting for? Why will you not cry out to God? How perplexing it must be to the Lord himself when he looks down and says, have I not shown you my heart? Have I not shown you my passion to answer you? Have I not shown you my power? Have I not shown you my willingness to even work with your frailty and your lack of faith? You know, we think we have to have a mountain of faith to move a mountain. That's the way, it, I don't know, we always think we want to give God a hand, even in our prayers. But he didn't say that. He said, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and it shall obey you. He didn't say you have to have a mountain of faith, you have to have a mustard seed of faith. Like the little boy who's on his way home or to school, I don't know which direction he was going, and there's 10,000 people that need to be fed, and the little boy stops and gives his lunch to Jesus, and a whole crowd, 10,000 people are, are fed. It's amazing. Can you imagine when that boy went home? Mom, Dad, you'll never guess what I did today. I fed 10,000 people with my lunch that you made. And they probably said, go to your room. When you learn not to lie and exaggerate, you can come back down to dinner. But I'm telling the truth. I put my lunch into the hands of a man and multiplied it. He was not offended with the smallness of what I had in my hand. This is the beauty of our salvation. God is not the offended by the littleness of our faith sometimes, not offended by our questions and our struggles and even sometimes our accusations against his faithfulness because he's good and his mercy endures forever. We serve a God who can turn back time. He can recover the things that you thought were lost forever. He can show you and I the way that we need to go into the future. He can break the chains that bind us in pieces, no matter how they got on our hands or how the bars got in front of us. He can break those chains in pieces. He can open any prison door. He can set any captive free. He can heal us where we've been wounded in our hearts to the point where we believe that we'll never be able to recover. He can give sight to our blinded eyes so that we can see a way forward that only God can set before us. 
He can send his word and bring healing into our lives when we think we're irrevocably damaged and hurt and beyond repair. He can bring us out of our distresses and present storms. He can stand up in the midst of our journey and speak the same words to you and same words to me that he once spoke in that boat, peace, be still. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I will always be with you. Be still and know that I will never fail you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Be still and know that there's no power, no principality, no mountain, no valley, nothing present, nothing to come that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Be still. Be still and know that I have sealed you in my Father's hand, and no one can take you out of my Father's hand. Be still and know that no weapon formed against you will ever prosper, and every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn it. This is the heritage of the servants of God. Be still and know that by my stripes you are healed. I have destroyed the destroyer. I have rebuked the devourer. I have paid the price for your sin. I have crafted a future for you. I have determined and destined that you will be my people. You will bring praise to my name in the earth. I am your God. You are my people. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Glory to the name of Jesus. Why would we not cry out to him? You ever notice in the scripture that all the religious are following and trying to figure out every little piece and puzzle of the law, and it's the blind man that's saying, son of David, have mercy on me, that gets the miracle. You ever notice, as the prophet Isaiah once said, it's the, it's the lame that press through the crowd and get the victory. It's the man, woman that knows who they are, knows what they are, but understands there's something about this man, Jesus, that can change my future. And they don't care who tells them to be quiet. They don't care what kind of social pressure is put upon them. They start crying out to him unreservedly. Oh, Jesus, have mercy on me. I have one prayer that I've prayed all my life that God always answers. Jesus, help me. I prayed it all my life. I started praying it when I got saved, and I still pray it. I still pray it every night. I still pray when I get up in the morning, Jesus, help me. When I stand in this pulpit, I pray, Jesus, help me. You know, he always answers it. He always has, and he always will. Because he's good, and his mercy endures forever. We sang about it today in the worship portion of the service, and you felt God speaking through the worship. You could feel him speaking to us about the depth of his love, something about his character that we're reluctant to receive. We always want God, we, we always want to put a little asterisk under every promise in the Bible, you know, like that little, that little thing that, you know, at the end of every advertisement, maybe on uh, television, there's always that voice that goes 100 miles an hour with all the exceptions to the rule. And we want to do that under our life when we pray a prayer, all these little things, doesn't apply to you, doesn't apply to you, doesn't apply to you. And, and the, the reality is there, there are no asterisks under his promises. And we don't need a mountain of faith. I, I, I mean, I would never even lay claim to ever having had a mountain of faith. I had as much as I've I had. 
You know, sometimes it's an accusation. Sometimes it's unbelief, according to the scriptures. And sometimes it's, it's just I want to believe. And sometimes I do. But the thing is, God answers all of it because he's good. His mercy endures forever. We have a tendency to want to make prayer something that it is never meant to be. Have you ever seen the passion in his heart to answer you? Like he's, he's on his, it's like he's on the throne like this, just waiting for you to ask instead of like this, waiting for you to, you know, speak for 16 years about this issue and then he might move his, his power. It's not like that. He's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. Then they cried. Then they cried. Then they cried. He broke their bars in two. He brought them to the desired heaven. He redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. You know, when he sent Moses into Egypt, when he first came to Moses, he said, I've heard their cry. Remember? Their children are being thrown in the river. I heard their cry, and I've come down to deliver them. Isn't that amazing? He didn't say, I heard their faith. He didn't say, I heard their quoting of scripture. I heard their cry. If ever there was a time to cry out to God, it's now. If ever there was a time to unreservedly, just like the father say, God, help us. God, help our children. God, have mercy on this nation. Have mercy, oh God, on our families. Have mercy on the addicted in our cities. Have mercy, Lord Jesus Christ, on the confused in our schools and grade schools. And have mercy, my God, on those that are trying to lead others astray in their folly. Have mercy, my God. We're not asking for judgment. We're asking for mercy. Have mercy on us as a nation, Lord, for having trusted in money more than you. We wrote it on our coinage, and God we trust, but yet we trusted in our coins more than you. God, have mercy on us for our folly. We've failed and we've fallen. And the Lord heard their cry, and he sent a great deliverance because God is good and his mercy endures forever. Praise God. I want to give an altar call. It's a little different than I did this morning, but here's what the Holy Spirit has put on my heart. It's an altar call for people who want to say, God, I want to see you the way this pastor just talked about you. I want to see you that way. Please, God, remove the veil. I, I feel like you're hidden from me. I feel like I set my own estimation of who you are above what you declare yourself to be in your word. I make you out to be hard when actually you went to a cross because you're a God of love. I make you out to be reluctant to answer my prayer when you are waiting and wanting to answer it. I want to see you. That was the cry of the man on the side of the road, the blind man. I want to see. I want to see. God, I, did, I don't want to live behind the veil any longer. I, I want my prayers to be answered, and even if my prayers are just to cry, that's all they are. You know, the, the message that brought me here to New York City in 1994, the one that David Wilkerson heard, was called, When a Prayer Becomes a Cry. I, I think it was prophetic. I really do. It was the message that the Lord sent to him. Somebody sent it to him that he listened to three years after he got it. 
And he said, he said to me, I heard something in that message. I think it was something in the future. I think it was a, a moment maybe where we are going to cry out to God. We are going to rediscover his mercy. We are going to come out from behind the veil and, and just meet him face to face and say, Lord Jesus, I, I want to be able to pray like that. I want to be able to talk to you like that. I, I want to see you as the God who is passionate to answer me before I even ask you. I want, I want to go there. I want that kind of prayer. And I want the prayers that I pray to make a difference, not only in my life, but for the people around me, whether it's your own family or your friends or the circle you travel in. I just, I just want my life to make a difference. And I want you, God, to be merciful to me and to them. And then for others who are just in a storm, you're just, you're just in a storm. You just don't know if you're going to make it to the other side and say, God, I, I, I want to trust you. I want to see you. I want to trust you. I want to believe you. So, Father, I, I have delivered your heart, and I know I have. I know that there's nothing left to be said. It's all been said. And, Lord, I, I just want to thank you for, I want to thank you for your vulnerability, Lord, for your willingness to be made known. I pray, God, that we would not reject you when you come out from behind the veil and say, this is who I am. This is my heart. This is what I want to do, that we would not turn our backs on that and go back to an old form of religion. Give us the grace, Lord, to see you in the way we've heard from your word today. In Jesus' name. Let's stand. If that's you and you feel God tugging at your heart, would you come and join just join with me here at this altar, and we're going to pray together in just a moment. Slip out of your seat wherever you are. Either side, come down the side aisles, move in close, let everybody come. I want to see you, Lord. I want to see you this way. I want to understand your goodness. I, I want it to affect the way I pray. It changes the way you pray. When you see God, when you see Christ passionately wanting to answer you, it changes the way you pray changes even the way you talk to him. It becomes more of a conversation in a sense than a, a repetition. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Just, just move out. and Come on and move in close. Let everybody come.